we're very all or nothing, we Americans, right? And there's this sort of macho ideology around um, putting in long hours and we somehow have to have kind of deified busyness even in a way that I think is really, really detrimental. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can avoid burnout, improve your productivity, and activate your creative mind, all through the simple act of slowing down. One of my obsessions throughout this season has been the topic of work-life balance, and more specifically, how to set boundaries at the office and how to make room outside of work for everything else a person needs to be a happy, healthy, whole human being. And today, I continue exploring this thread with Tammy Foreman, the CEO of Path Forward, a nonprofit organization that helps women and men transition back into the workforce after they've taken a long break to raise a child. I first encountered Tammy while watching an incredible five-minute talk that she gave on women in the workplace, which cited, among other shocking statistics, the fact that there are more CEOs in America named John than there are female CEOs. I know. Just let that sink in for a minute. With Tammy, I had the opportunity to expand the conversation about work-life balance from the individual to the family, asking, what does setting boundaries mean for those of us that are raising a family outside of work? And how can we, as individuals and managers, set expectations in the workplace that accommodate not just single 20-somethings with all the time in the world to devote to work, but also families? We also talked about how parenting makes you better at prioritizing and why a concept called core hours could be the key to accommodating a wide array of different schedules in the workplace, from busy moms and dads who need extra flexibility to startup singletons who just want to sleep in and show up at work at 11 a.m. I should note that this interview happened in the middle of a rainstorm in a conference room with droplets pinging off an air conditioner in the window throughout the conversation. We tried to minimize the plinking a bit in post-production, but if you hear some background noise, that's what it is. I kicked off the conversation by asking Tammy to describe the quote-unquote ideal worker that most companies envision employing. So the ideal worker is, it's kind of a 1950s notion, right? It's like the person who can come in early, work late, and isn't distracted by anything, right? Nothing is, is, is making him, and it's a him generally, right, uh, think about anything other than the work to be done. Um, and they don't have any obligations outside of the office that require them um, to be home or to do any, right? They are able to be fully present from nine to whenever and jump on a plane when they need to, right? That they are unencumbered by any obligations outside the office. And I think that's an idea that we all hold in our head. It's not, you know, evil executives who are like, this is what we want. It's, it's an idea we all kind of hold in our head and it's very limiting for everyone. And why do you think we can't kind of let go of this idea that work sort of happens in a specific place in specific windows of time? You know, I think the reason for that is that it is extraordinarily difficult to measure performance, both quality of performance and even quantity of output. 
Um, and so a time clock is a little, it feels objective. Um, and again, goes back to this idea of the factory floor, right? Where literally time equaled product, right? The amount of time you spent on the floor was the amount of product that you created. And we haven't come up with something better. And I think it's to our detriment, certainly to our detriment as people, but actually even to the detriment of businesses. People can sit at a computer all day long and look like they are busy as heck and be doing nothing more than checking Facebook and reading BuzzFeed, right? So we, we need to do this. We need to come up with a better way to measure performance than just time spent in a desk. And what do you think some of the, the factors that we should be looking at instead, what would the alternatives be, do you think? So it's going to vary. Uh, so, you know, look, there are professions that are more able to do this, and they tend to be more flexible ones, right? I mean, you look at things like sales, for example, where people are measured on their quota. Did you make your quota? Yes or no? And that's that. Um, and there certainly are other jobs that aren't necessarily specifically sales that fall into that category. Client management even sometimes has specific measures of um, of sales performance. Um, in other jobs, we can look at output, right? We can look at the amount of output. Um, but I think it's something that requires managers to be mindful and, and businesses to be mindful of what is it that you're driving for? What are the results that you're looking for? And how do you measure them? I think the results-only um, revolution is interesting. I think the, the flip of that is you have to be careful that you don't disincentivize risk. That's the other side of the performance piece, right? If you if you make workers, uh, if if they if they can't fail, that's also going to stifle innovation. So you have to have a measure that allows for well, we tried something, so that effort was put in, but it didn't work out. So now we're going to try something else. So again, it requires a little bit of flexibility on this part of the manager to think more critically about what it is that they are trying to achieve. Right. So it's really not about some universal metric like hours that you showed up, but rather defining individual metrics, you know, they're quite, in fact, specific to right. the task. Right. Right. So for a writer, it might be blog posts written for a, right for like there's all kinds of ways to do that. Um, and um, it's going to vary by by company, certainly, but by department and, and all of those things. But I mean, it's more interesting. It's a more interesting job for a manager to think about what is it that we're trying to achieve and, and how do we measure whether or not we've achieved that. Um, but it's harder, much, much harder. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I was talking to someone the other day about, right, so for knowledge work in particular, I think one of the, you were talking about failure is one thing you have to account for, right? Yeah. I think one of the other things that you have to account for is the fact that everything actually takes longer than you think it will. I was talking to someone about this the other day, and I didn't actually know that it had a name, but I guess there's something called Hofstetter's Law, which basically says that. And it says that even if you recognize that everything takes longer than you think it will, and you account for it, then it will still take longer than you think it will. Yeah. <laughs> so I think like that is one well, of the big problems with metrics, right? Because then you just have to be so vigilant about constantly... Well, and redefining them. And executives are really bad at estimating how long work takes. So, and particularly creative work, 
right? So when I worked in marketing, I had a joke that an executive generally estimated that any piece of work that I produced, whether it was a white paper or a video, or it didn't matter what the output was, um, took roughly two to three times as long to produce as it took him to consume, <laughs> right? So if it took him, and the, the best example of that is if it, it took him 20 minutes to read a white paper, he assumed that that meant it took about an hour to create it. And it's like, uh, try like 40. <laughs> and they hate that answer, right? That is another thing, right? We kind of collectively hate the answer that things take longer and that, 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 that time is required to produce things. <laughs> right, because we're not making widgets. We're making things that are quite a bit more complex. Right. Um, well, and I think one of the challenges, too, is that Right, people aren't just doing a single job anymore. They're doing many. They're playing many, many different roles, and usually managing a number of different projects. Often, those projects maybe report into different people, and so part of, I guess, representing how hard you're working has a lot more to do with you having an incredibly sort of clear idea in your mind of what you're working on, so that you can then articulate it back to this manager, that manager, whatever manager, but which. Is quite difficult to do, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And it also, I think that the flip of what I was saying about managers and how hard it is to manage performance if time isn't the goal, I think that's also difficult for people for themselves. And I think that the I think that the current knowledge work environment requires a lot more self management than people are used to, um, and self discipline than people are used to, um, and. I, and we haven't trained people on how to do that. Um, and we haven't trained people how to think about what they're trying to achieve and how what they're doing fits into a bigger whole. Um, I think that's what executives mean when they f are frustrated that people aren't being more strategic, right? That's kind of what they're talking about, even though they don't say it in that way, right? They, they just, oh, she's just not strategic enough, right? Well, and that's an interesting segue into um, my next question, which is, so what do you think that um, mothers or fathers kind of learn when they step out of the workplace and they're at home managing children, managing a family, about how to prioritize time and about how to value time that they can take back into the workplace? Do you think there are insights there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, actually, I'll talk about one quick thing. I, I think the negotiation skills that you learn when I joke that when you um, have successfully got the toddler to put down the cookie, you are now like kidnapper level negotiation skill, right? Like this is some serious um, stakeholder management uh, is a big is a big skill that you learn. And certainly time, right? Moms are are their own boss. I mean, they aren't because the kids are the boss, but they they are the they are the ones who decide, right, how the time gets spent. Um, and need to manage that in a way, particularly if they have been working since college or when they graduated high school or whatever their situation was, they've had some, if they've had someone telling them what to do and when to do it, they're suddenly not, they don't have that anymore. Um, they may have school schedules that they need to align to, so they may have some external factors, but they are really on their own to figure out what is the best way for me to spend my time and for me to spend my kids' time, right? Um, and I think that opens up all kinds of things around project management, time management, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and the ability to get stuff done. I mean, these women get stuff done. 
Yeah, well, and I think that idea, this I've read, you know, so many articles at this point, um, particularly from, you know, women who became mothers who were maybe writers or had some other sort of creative profession and then no longer have this kind of, you know, wide open amount of space to write. And so, you know, they figured out how to, you know, in these small windows or just an hour, like really, really kind of, you know, ring blood from stone, these tiny little windows of time. And it seems like that's an interesting skill that kind of carries over maybe. Oh, I think, you know, we, we all talk about prioritization. I think moms really know how to prioritize um, and to, and yes, to more efficiently make use of time. Um, I think that's one of the biggest frustrations for a lot of women when they come back to the office um, after um, having been even just on a brief maternity leave um, and are finding that now they have a deadline, right? Now they have to, they can't just stay for as long as, they have to actually leave the office. And of course, everyone kind of looks at them like, well, yeah, we knew this was gonna happen, not as committed. And it's like, but actually I'm getting as much done, right? I'm just not taking that long lunch I used to take, or I'm not standing around the water cooler, or I'm not checking Facebook seven times, right? I know that I have this window of time and I'm gonna cram all my work into it and get it done. Um, And I think that is one of those, it comes back to that thing of how we measure performance. Um, And I think the fact that we measure it by time um, really disadvantages anyone who has obligations outside of the home and certainly women. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Germany in Cologne, and she was talking about how she felt that the work culture in Germany was so different because, you know, there was a very strong sort of commitment to working, you know, fairly circumscribed, like small amount of hours and not staying late at work, but that when people were at work, they were very committed and focused to doing work, you know, so they weren't checking their personal email or they weren't checking Facebook so that they then could, you know, go off and have like a more full life later. Um, But that seems very, I think, different from sort of the American approach. I mean, study after study has shown that after 55 hours a week, which is a pretty robust work week, your, your performance just goes down the drain. You're not really getting anything done. And it's something like, what is it? 40% of Americans work more than 50 hours a week and 20% work more than 60 hours a week, right? When productivity is falling off a cliff, it's dim- diminishing returns after 40 and then kind of off a cliff after 55 hours. But why do you think that we're so kind of obsessed with this because I do feel like maybe everyone doesn't know those stats, but there's an intuitive, yeah. I think, awareness. We're very all or nothing, we Americans, right? And there's this sort of macho ideology around um, putting in long hours and we somehow have to have kind of deified busyness even in a way that I think is really, really detrimental um, to our physical and mental health. And it, it's not producing anything. Like that's like if it was actually, you know, there was some output on the other side of that or like business results that were happening as a result of that. But it's not. And I think one of the best stats about that was there was a study that came out about um, one of the big consulting firms. And these uh, the headline in the Times was like how men, how some men fake an 80-hour work week. And and I loved it in, we, in, a, in a specific way because it shows that even in the industry where supposedly the only way to get ahead is to work these crazy hours, there are plenty of people who are actually getting ahead and not doing that. So clearly it's possible. And I, I think that we need to think about that more critically. How were they faking it? Well, so they would, you know, leave the computer open and they were like, you know, they were doing things that made it look, and they, but they... But importantly, they were getting it done, right? So the results were there, right? And they were 
Um, but interestingly, they weren't asking for flexibility, right? They weren't asking permission for those kinds of things. They were just kind of doing it. And because they were high performers, they were able to do that. Um, and they were clearly maximizing their time and productivity in ways that made them more successful. Um, I would love to see our entire culture start to actually look at people who overwork as a little bit problematic. Like, what's wrong with you if you cannot get your work done in a reasonable amount of time? Like, are you not efficient? Are you not actually competent? Like, what, like mm-hmm. how can we help you in your performance? Like, this isn't actually, instead of making that like a badge of honor, that it instead became like, actually, we need to help you because you clearly aren't performing up to standards if you need to work more in order to be able to produce your output. I mean, I feel like the big, the kind of elephant in the room here is this idea of how, um, not just companies, but I think I'm more interested in how individuals can define enough, which is something I'm constantly thinking about and struggling with. And um, I'm curious how you do that for yourself, um, you know, and also how maybe if you've seen like kind of interesting examples of other people or companies doing that as well. Yeah, companies is tougher. I mean, I think for individuals and for me personally, like, and I'm starting a nonprofit right from scratch. So there is no, there's, there's an infinite amount of things that can be done at any given moment. And I have tried to find, I have tried to see that as liberating. And what I mean by that is, okay, I could do anything. And yet (laughs) there are, you know, time is, physical as well as metaphysical, right? There is literally a number of hours. And I know for myself that if I work more, I won't produce more. Like my, uh, my output will go down, it will be shoddier. Um, and so if my time is finite, how do I want to spend it? What are the things that have the highest impact? Um, and, and what do I then put on the back burner and how do I make those decisions? And I'm very mindful of that. I'm a bullet journalist. I do the bullet journal, um, cause I like the physicality of paper. I think it makes it a little bit easier for us to time box things. Uh, I will literally time box things where I'll say, okay, I'm going to spend an hour on this and that's what I'm going to allot to this, um, particular task. And, um, and I am also looking at results, but also, measuring, you know, there's things that we do that don't produce a result because we had to try it and we don't know until we try it whether or not it's going to produce that result. So um, it's not easy, but it can be done. Can I ask you to like zoom in even further on that? Like, are there other um, examples that you can share of kind of how you do that? So for instance, I'll, I'll tell you what I do, which is I have this kind of list of projects Um, you know, that I maybe put up kind of on a wall by my desk every three months. And it has kind of my, you know, limited amount of projects that I really need to move the needle on, like, you know, and what I want to accomplish, a deadline and kind of key actions I need to take to get there. And then I have kind of a daily calendar where I track sort of metrics, as you talked about, related to those projects. So I'm making a podcast now. So it's like number of interviews booked and conducted or um, I'm working on an online course, so it's like numbers of lessons written, right? And then have these metrics to kind of track the progress towards the goals. Um, But even within that construct, right, like still how do you kind of get to 
enough? Or like, how do you pick and choose, right? Because I think the thing is, you're starting a nonprofit, there's an infinite amount of things to do. But I think because of, uh, you know, the proliferation of technology, the proliferation of email, everyone has an infinite amount of time, of, or an infinite amount of things they could do, you know, of varying importance. Um, I mean, are there certain types of things where you just said, like, no, I'm not going to do those things, like, they don't provide value, or... Yeah, and actually, that's those are the easy ones. I've also done that with things that probably would provide value, but are not more valuable than you know. We are um, kind of right now. My team and I, which is a small team, there's five of us, and it's and they're not even all full time, so it's like three and a half FTE, and we're using some some Word documents, but also some Google documents, and their shared files are. It's just kind of a little bit of a mess, and. Somebody mentioned, you know, we really should fix the shared file system. And I'm like, you know, we should, except that's not more important than me being on stage somewhere or talking about what we're doing. So, yeah, we're not going to do that right now. Yeah, we probably should, but we'll, we're going to muddle through in that sense. So I actually, last, at the end of last year, in the middle of December, I had an epiphany that despite the fact that I'm, like, talking to women about work-life balance, I wasn't exercising at all. <laughs> and I was like... I gotta, and and I need to make it happen for myself, and I need to find the time. I need to, the, the time is there. I need to find it. Like I need to make it. It's not gonna like magically appear. Um, and I started working out three times a week, and I've been doing that three times a week consistently since the middle of December, and now four times a week. And I just look at my calendar every week, and where do those slots fit? Um, I can find three or four forty-five minute slots in my week. They are there. I just have to um, make them happen. And then, and then the other stuff has to go around that. But that also, it requires, I, co- I keep saying this, right, like self-management and self-discipline. And the discipline is not just getting out of bed and running. Like that's, yeah, that's sure, that takes discipline. But it's also the discipline to say, this is important. I feel better when I do it. I perform better when I do it. So I'm going to make it happen. We're going to pause here for a quick break, but stay tuned for more great conversation after the jump, because that's when Tammy and I get into my favorite takeaway from this interview, the concept of core hours, a way to structure the workday to accommodate all different kinds of schedules and also have everyone spend less time in meetings. This episode is brought to you by SaneBox. To find out more about how SaneBox works in the field, I interviewed Sheena Brady, the founder of Teas Tea, a company that makes modern tea blends for every desire. How would you describe your struggle with email? What's What was the biggest problem for you? I think the biggest problem was facing that never-ending avalanche of emails uh, and kind of getting analysis paralysis. The second you open up your inbox, you're not even sure where to start to come through it all. And how did things change for you once you started using SaneBox? SaneBox was honestly life-changing for me, uh, basically using its bot tool to help uh, categorize emails before they even enter my inbox uh, has definitely streamlined my efficiency and productivity. Right. And so that kind of burden of analysis is sort of lifted. Exactly. And so do you find that you're kind of experiencing less stress about those less urgent or less important emails? Oh, far less stress. It's definitely helped to make my day a little bit more calm and focused and efficient um, by, again, just having what I need right there in front of me when I need it with those important emails and everything else actioned on when I'm able to give it my attention. It sounds like you really have your email unlocked now. (laughs) Working on a little bit every day. Same box. Less email overload, less stress, and more focus on the messages that really matter. 
Visit SaneBox.com slash hurry slowly today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash hurry slowly. Well, a word that came up when you were just kind of talking about thinking about priorities, which I think is an interesting word, is should, which I think we're sort of plagued by now, right? Because we have so many, um, we always have more requests on our time than we could actually fulfill. Um, and I'm kind of interested in thinking about that word and also this idea of, you know, just kind of people pleasing and how much of an impact that has on well, we have we are very um, ambivalent about autonomy and agency. I talk about that a lot in my workshops with the women coming back to work. Right, we 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 want autonomy, and we certainly want to think of ourselves as agents of our own life, and yet only kind of sorta. Um, it's always amazing to me how quickly people will say, "Well, I had to." You don't. You are free will, my friend. You don't have to do anything. And when you frame it that way, you know, people tend to bristle at that idea that like, well, it's like, well, no, 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 you don't have to. Um, What are the consequences if you don't? Oh, you're not willing to accept those consequences. That's not a have to. That means like, I, I want to do that thing because I don't want this other bad thing to happen or whatever, or I want a good thing to happen that will happen because of that. And I think that, that when you change your mindset around, around autonomy and agency and take responsibility, um, even when there are things that are out of your control, which of course is the hardest, right? It's hard to take responsibility for choices that may feel foisted upon you, but actually that's the time when it's the most important to accept that you do have a choice to make and you're making it. Well, yeah, it's that idea, right? That total freedom is total responsibility. I, I, I think this is why we struggle so much with the time thing and why we all sort of gravitate to it because it feels very objective and measurable, right? How much time I spent in the office is how I, hard I worked. Um, and and it f- feels imposed upon us in a way that's 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 comfortable, that's familiar and comfortable, right? Someone told me I had to go to the office every day from nine to five, and I I hope. I mean, the other thing is I hope I'm role modeling. So, so my daughter this morning when I was taking her down to the bus, you know, noticed that I was still in my running clothes, and she was like, you know, you're not basically like you're not going to work like that, are you, mom? And I was like, I was like, no, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna drop you at the bus, and then I'm gonna go back upstairs and shower and work she's like so can you go to work whenever you want and I was like well and I like, maybe that's not what I wanted to think and she's like well you know as long as it's not too late right mom and I was like well yeah I have some flexibility there in terms of when I and it was just sort of an interesting moment because of course she goes to school which happens at the same time every day so that's sort of the model she's learning and it's interesting to show her something different Right. Well, and also that you felt like a little bit uncomfortable showing her something <laughs> different. Like you were like, is this going to instill the wrong value? <laughs> Who knows, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it, it's kind of interesting what you were saying, right? That it is easy to measure, um, you know, FaceTime or hours showed up. and it's, But it's actually kind of lazy in a way because it means that you're not actually proactively defining you know, what type of work you, measuring value in some actually quite more meaningful, you know, maybe it could be significantly less lazy to work five hours a day in which you actually had really thought about what you wanted to accomplish than to, you know, just kind of 
blindly, you know, show up from nine to six or nine to seven or nine to nine, you know? It's definitely, it's, it's quite lazy, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be like, okay, either we're all in the office every single day, Monday through Friday, nine to six, or anyone can show up whenever they want. Like there are middle places. So way back in the eighties, I worked for Houghton Mifflin in Boston and they had a policy of what they called core hours, which you had to be in the office by 10 and you couldn't leave until three. 10 to three was the core hours. But within that, you could work any eight hour period, meaning you could come in as early as seven and leave at three, or you could come in as late as 10 and stay until seven. So you could adjust your schedule to your, and then the core hours were really about when people could meet collaboratively, when meetings could be held. And it, and it's so funny, cause that was, so it wasn't the eighties. I'm not dating myself more than I am. It was 95-ish, right? Which feels ancient now when you think about it. But that was actually, when I look back on it, kind of a progressive idea. Um, And also an idea that we've now kind of just, I don't know any tech companies that do that. And yet, there's a way in which that would be quite progressive, I think, in terms of work-life balance, but also even teamwork. Like, if you think about Yahoo, right, and the whole everybody's got to come back to the office because nothing's getting done, like, there was probably a way to do that and also accommodate people's needs. Yeah, I actually really like this idea of core hours. Did you find that it was, I mean, did it work well? Was it effective? So I was young and I was married, but I had no children. So I kind of just, and I, but I had a long commute, which was interesting. So I, for me, it was kind of like, okay, whatever. Yeah, I guess that, you know, it it made it a little bit easier, but I definitely saw, particularly the moms in the office were really like jazzed about this. And there were some that came in super, super early because they had a husband or whoever who could drop the kids off in the morning, but then would leave at three so they could actually be home when their kids got home from school, which is such a novel concept. Um, And then actually it tended to be the younger people, not surprisingly, who were the ones who came in at 10 because they didn't want to have to get up early and would stay till seven because whatever, like I'm going out to drinks with my friends afterwards anyway. So it was just sort of like, wow, here's a way that we can create this. And also, by the way, the other thing it meant is you were not in wall-to-wall meetings all day because there, there was a time box. So it, it also meant that everybody, to an extent, got a block either at the beginning of the day or the end of their day where there wasn't going to be a meeting. Um, so it created, I mean, it's like now we call that maker hours, right? Like that's the new, con- but like that was a long time ago. Yeah, no, and but I, really I love it. I, I love it from for that reason because you know I use when I worked I work from home now. But when I worked in an office, you know I want to come in early and you know do my writing or do my editing, and you know then it's sort of like everyone else is rolling in, like chatting about their night, their weekend, and I'm like I don't want to hear about this. Like I just want to focus, you know. But I so I used to come in before everyone else would show up. But I kind of like this ten to three core hours idea because as you said, yeah, it constrains meetings and then you can kind of pick and choose. Like when do you want to, you know, have your serious focus time? And there's something kind of just like way more basic about that concept that sounds totally normal than, you know, maker's hours or like no meeting Wednesday or, you know, which I'll feel like a little bit artificial in some way. From here, Tammy and I shifted gears into a discussion of how startup culture a culture largely defined by young 20 or 30-something white males, is bleeding into workplace culture in general and why that creates norms that are problematic. I've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley now, and it's it's a very cliquish place, um, deeply cliquish. And there is this whole concept of getting it, 
right? And if you don't get it, if you are perceived as being someone who doesn't get it, and that's a little thing that people will say, you are out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is that clickishness I see um, out there that enforces things that I think are problematic. And that's part of it. And that the dress codes are part of it. And the bro culture is part of it. And the working a gajillion hours. I give an example um, in a longer version of the talk I did. Um, the example I give is, you know, the, the guy who comes in at 10 or 11 has his breakfast, does some coding for a couple hours, plays ping pong over lunch, um, and then goes back to coding and stays till nine or 10 or whatever, right? Like banging it out. Like that guy's a rock star. Wow. Look at how much he's getting done. Look at, look at how dedicated he is. Right. But the mom who comes in at eight, right? Two, three hours before this guy, but leaves at five and maybe even logs on again on her computer after the kids go to bed. Yeah. Just don't think she's committed. It's not about the hours, right? It's not, that's actually where I find it quite insidious because it's not even about the number of hours. It's about the specific hours and the way they're arranged. And again, it becomes this click of you're either in or you're out if you do it our way. Yeah, and there's that kind of feeling of like slinking out. Yeah. Oh, God. Five, well, yeah, 6 that's, PM. yeah. Yeah. And believe me, those guys coming in at 10, 11, they aren't slinking. <laughs> they aren't, there's no slinking happening. They are. <laughs> Um, so kind of, um, shifting gears, I've heard, um, listened to a bunch of different interviews that you've done and, and, um, a couple of different times you've used this phrase, crafting a rich whole life. Um, what does that, what does that mean to you? What do you think that entails? And do you think it's, it's one thing for women in the workplace or at home and something else for men? No. And in fact, that's, I think men and women have both been sold a bill of goods, right? Um, And and it's actually shocking to me in 2017 how much our culture reinforces what look like very old-fashioned gender roles. Um, And what I mean by that is women are told, sure, you can have a career, but as soon as you have kids, the kids have to take precedence. And if you can fit your career around them, that's okay, Um, but that the kids have to come first and your career must come second and whatever, if there is a sacrifice to be made, the sacrifice for you needs to be on your career. Men are told the opposite, by the way, right? So men are told that something just as constricting, which is you are meant to be the provider and therefore you are meant to put your career first always. You should also be a good dad and you should find time for that somehow, somewhere. But if a sacrifice needs to be made, you should make the family sacrifice and put your career first. And these are both crazy ideas um, and I think are, are detrimental to all of us as humans. Um, and what I mean by crafting a rich whole life is a life that allows you to have time for achievements, professional achievements, but however you would define that, right? This goes back to the metaphysical, but like if it's a career, right? Money is how we measure in this society, right? So having career achievements having a rich family life, having relationships with your family, um, having hobbies if you're into that sort of thing, um, like whatever it is that gives you what you need to feel like you're living a rich whole life and that you're happy and that, you, that you're doing what you want to be doing. Um, and that's what I mean by that. And I actually believe that is important for both men and women. And I actually think if more men made it a priority to have a rich family life, it would open up the conversation in ways 
that would really be revolutionary. Um, and I think for women to assert that sometimes my career comes first and sometimes my family comes first and they're both important to me and I can do both of those things, like the fact that that's a revolutionary thing to say is kind of shocking. Um, and yet that's still where we are. Um, but the reason I think it's so detrimental to women more than men, at least in the public sphere, is it is it, the idea that your children need to come first automatically is the thing that, that chases many women out of the workforce. Or I think it's also like the opt-out revolution, I mean, it's a lot of elite women, right? But like there are a lot of women who don't leave the workforce but pull back in ways, right? That's where you see the leadership gap. Um, and I think it's very detrimental to women and ultimately detrimental to the society because I think we would be better as a, as a country and a world if women and men participated equally in the world and at home. I have dreams, big dreams. <laughs> what would the world look like if we didn't measure workplace performance in terms of hours? What if we didn't assess someone's commitment to the job in terms of age, or gender, but rather in terms of meaningful contributions. As Tammy said early in our conversation, when we measure performance based on time, literally how many hours that someone shows up at work, it really disadvantages women or anyone who has obligations outside of the workplace. It turns out then that work-life balance isn't just an individual burden. It's also a business challenge. As leaders, And as managers, we must ask ourselves, what matters more, hours spent at a desk or a job well done? By rethinking the way that we measure performance, we might actually encourage people to perform differently. Coming up next week, a supercut of a variety of season one guests answering one of my favorite questions. What gives you anxiety? If you feel a little bit of imposter syndrome or just find yourself constantly wondering if you're going to regret a big decision, the good news is you're not alone. As Kierkegaard said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. It's the possibility of possibility. And as such, it's an essential part of the creative process. So tune in next week to hear about the secret neuroses of smart people you respect. And now, it's time for your final moment of zen. Do you like doing it? If you don't, you should stop. What if we all stopped? Right? What would happen if we all just stopped doing those things that we don't want to do? That might make space for things that we do want to do. The show was produced by Matt Susich, and our theme music, Calm Revelation, was created by Devin Craig Johnson. A huge... Extra thanks again to Tammy Foreman, who was gracious enough to reschedule this interview and walk through the pouring rain to meet me for it after we discovered that her office contains a massive radio antenna that caused my podcast recording equipment to be haunted by ghost radio waves. If you enjoyed the show, please stop by our iTunes page and leave us a rating. There's no need to keep the good news to yourself. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember... To hurry slowly. <laughs>